This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, Weekend Warriors of Michigan Politics and Government. Let's talk horse racing. Now, that may not sound like politics and government, but it is. And coming up this weekend, because the latest chapter in the fastest two minutes in sports is upon us again. Yes, this year's Kentucky Derby, the 147th, will once again be telecast on NBC and simulcast in Michigan today, Saturday, May 1st. Post time is supposed to be 6.57 p.m., but you can count on it being a little later than that. Last year's Derby, as all Railbirds know, was unlike any other in history. Because of the coronavirus, the 2020 Derby featured empty stands and infield with no fans sipping mint juleps and wearing outlandish hats. And instead of the Derby being the first leg in the Triple Crown sequence on the first Saturday in May, it was postponed for four months until September, after the Belmont Stakes, which was held at its regular time in June. The Preakness, usually the second of the three jewels, was postponed to to October 3rd. But this year's Derby is back to near normalcy on schedule and with limited crowds. In Michigan, where live horse racing has been virtually destroyed by bungling Lansing politicians, legally you can bet on it for the 26th straight year at the state's only remaining paramutual track, Northville Downs. In the era of COVID-19, the track without live racing is requiring reservations if you want to see the Derby at the Downs but there will be an express line for those who want to bet. Now, the tribe, the Native Americans who run fire keepers in Battle Creek, the casino, they'll be showing the derby. Uh, They wanted to offer what is called fixed odds wagers on the race, but for technical reasons, they can't. Uh, Fixed odds wagers mean that instead of a three-to-one and shifting odds, you can put a buck down and win 275 no matter what. Fixed odds horse racing is the latest trend. We haven't allowed it in the casinos or through internet wagering because none of the money would go to horse racing and it is not allowed under the Horse Racing Act. But generally, the state's gaming control board does not control what the tribes offer on their own land. Of course, you can also legally bet on the Derby online elsewhere, although the last three Michigan governors, including the present one, and most state legislators may not realize that. With a little bit of planning and a credit debit card, you can set up a prepaid account with a number of Internet betting sites and then watch the race in the comfort of your living room, office, field tent, or jail cell. Also, Advanced Deposit Wagering, ADW as it's called, is now legal in Michigan, meaning you can go to the Northville Downs website right now 
and find out how to bet there. Does this year's $2 million classic remind us of recent years when favorites like Orb or California Chrome or American Pharaoh or Nyquist or Justify All One? Or will it be more like last year when Authentic pulled off an upset or 2012 when a 12-to-1 shot named I'll Have Another, remember him, embarrassed the favorites to win? Or what about 2003, to look at it from an opposite perspective, Empire Maker was a prohibitive favorite over all the other horses? No. He didn't win. In other words, derbies are like snowflakes. They're all the same, yet they're all different, especially so this year. The race is always run at Kentucky's Churchill Downs. It's always a mile and a quarter. The horses are all three-year-olds, and in recent years, the field has always been huge, up to a maximum of 20 entries. But everything else is different and varied trainers and owners and jockeys and especially the horses they're handling and track conditions as well as the past performances of all the contenders. So which horse do we pick? Post positions have been assigned and Churchill Downs's racing secretary has established the undefeated essential quality, that's the name of the horse, undefeated in five races as the favorite at odds of two to one. That's not as strong a betting choice as tis the law was last year at three to five, but that colt had already won the Belmont Stakes three months earlier. Essential Quality, this year's favorite, won the Breeders' Cup Juvenile last year, and he won this year's Bluegrass Stakes. When all is said and done, let's not go for the chalk, which means the favorite this year. Let's pick Hot Rod Charlie to win. If you want to hedge your bet, pick Hot Rod Charlie in essential quality in a Quinella, meaning they must finish one, two in either order. Or if you want to have a little fun, plunk for Hot Rod Charlie plus essential quality and known agenda in a trifecta. But you have to pick them in exact order of finish. Any way you cut it, the biggest challenge for each of these Colts, there will be no Phillies this year, will be negotiating his way around and through 19 other horses as opposed to the skimpy fields they've faced in the past four months. Now, let's also mention that Senate Majority Floor Leader Dan Lowers testified before the Senate Agriculture Committee Thursday on a four-bill package aimed at bringing back a once $1.2 billion horse racing industry in Michigan. Senate Bill 396, sponsored by Lowers, allows for historical horse racing, which is an electronic gaming system that uses paramutual wagering on randomly selected outcomes of previously run live horse races. And Lowers, who is a Republican from Brockway Township over in the Lower Thumb area of Michigan, he says this, and I quote, what was once a billion-dollar industry is now hanging by a thread. 
This package can bring back an industry and generate revenue to put Michigan horse racing on a level playing field with surrounding states. Other bills in the bipartisan package include Senate Bill 397, which is sponsored by Senate Minority Leader Jim Ananick, a Democrat of Flint. It would amend the Lottery Act to include video lottery terminals with lottery games approved prior to 2004 as an approved electronic lottery game. These could only be located at licensed horse racing tracks. There's also Senate Bill 398, sponsored by Senator Curtis Hertel, Democrat of East Lansing would amend the Michigan Gaming Control Act to allow casinos that receive a third-party facilitator license through the Horse Racing Act to simulcast horse races in their building. And then there's finally Senate Bill 399, also sponsored by Ananick, and that would provide sentencing guidelines for violations of Senate Bill 397. Since 2007, Michigan has gone from six horse racing tracks, both thoroughbred and standard bred races, to one track running only standard breads, which are trotters and pacers. But with additional funding source options, Michigan can attract new investment in tracks and bring Michigan horsemen and breeders back home with higher purses and thoroughbred racing. We're going to be back in a minute, so stay tuned because we're going to have a horseman on the line with us, and we're going to talk more racing. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. As promised, we have returned, and we have on the line with us Tom Barrett. Now, this is not the state senator from Eaton County, the 24th Senate District. This is Tom Barrett, the president of the Michigan Harness Horsemen's Association and a member of the Michigan Horse Racing Advisory Council appointed by the governor. Welcome to the Political Insider, Tom Barrett. Thank you, Bill. Good morning. Look, I want to ask you to explain to our listeners exactly what is the Michigan Harness Horsemen's Association, the MHHA, as everybody calls it. How big is it? How long has it been around? What does it do? Where is it going in the future? Well, the MHHA is an, is an organization that represents the horsemen that uh, train and breed and race horses at uh, the fairs and the paramutual racetracks in Michigan. So, we have a contract with Northville Downs. Uh, that contract uh, uh, allows us to represent the horsemen. It allows us to receive uh, a, uh, a small commission on the amounts that are wagered um, to run the organization, represent the uh, horsemen, uh, attempt to lobby to uh, to help change the laws for the benefit of the uh, the horsemen we represent. So all segments of the uh, harness industry. This is uh, separate from the uh, the thoroughbred interests, but uh, the uh, the harness interests uh, we race stand underbred horses and pull a sulky right now at Northville Downs. Right. You know, a lot of our listeners don't really know the difference between trotters and pacers. What's the difference? <laughs> well, well, they're both uh, standard bred breed. Uh, a trotter uh, and a pacer are, are different gates uh, the way they move their legs. A trotter moves his right front and left rear in unison, and a pacer uh, often wears hobbles that loop their left front and left uh, or right, 
right front and right rear uh, legs <laughs> together. Uh, so it's, they are they are gated they are gated horses and and they move their legs a little differently. So yeah, they're a little faster, aren't they? I mean, in a mile race, usually around two minutes, aren't pacers on the average about two seconds faster than trotters? They are. Yeah, but anyway, they're both great breeds. Um, you know, you told me a story recently about uh, stopping behind two women who were having a conversation somewhere on a street corner or an intersection. Uh, tell us about that. Well, um, this goes back to 2004 when I was in line. Uh, I live in Novi uh, when Prop 1 was being voted on. And uh, I'll get to, to what that was, but that was a... Um, a um, uh, constitutional amendment funded by the casinos to require uh, statewide and local election on any expansion of gaming. And these two young ladies in um, in line were waiting to vote, like myself, and they were going through the list of uh, uh, amendments and candidates and talking about each one and how they were going to vote. And we got to Prop 1, this particular um, um, amendment, and, and the ladies uh, both said no. We're, we're going to vote no because we don't want a casino on every corner. <laughs> and and they they clearly didn't understand who was funding the initiative and what it was about. But the interesting thing, uh, fast forwarding 17 years later, is now that those ladies, children, or they can can wager from their own home online uh, uh, via the casinos and lose all their money uh, without even leaving the house. So what's happened in that time frame, despite their vote, is that we don't have a casino on every corner. We have a casino in every computer and smartphone. So their kids now have a smartphone where they can go to MGM.com and lose all their money uh, and uh, and uh, never have to leave the home. So I, I just I look at that as a um, kind of a, a microcosm of what's happened uh, in the gaming industry uh, with the casinos now being everywhere in Michigan. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Not only the three Detroit casinos, but all the Native American land-based casinos, Soaring Eagle, Firekeepers, and so forth around the state amazing. Well, let me ask you about Northville Downs. That's the only track left, and it's running standard breads. What is the future of Northville Downs right now, in your opinion? Well, we have a con- we have a con- <clears throat> excuse me, Bill. We have a contract with Northville through um, uh, 2024. They are committed to racing there. Um, that land in downtown Northville, as you might imagine, is uh, is very valuable. Um, there have been various uh, stories in the news, really for a decade or so, about the potential of that uh, uh, land to be redeveloped for housing or retail or some combination. Uh, anybody that's familiar with the track, it's it's smack in downtown Northville, and and uh, the land is very desirable. But uh, on the other side, the Carlo family has been there 75 years. They are um, um, they are industry participants. Uh, their nephew AJ uh, trains horses in Ohio, so so they're insiders, and, and they have a passion for the game. And I, I don't think it's any accident that they're still active. They're the last track standing in part because uh, because of those uh, 
those things. Sure, I remember the Carlos. I mean, they've been there forever. I, I've known the whole family. They're they're wonderful people. It's great. Um, but you know, they are beleaguered, and harness racing is beleaguered. And of course, thoroughbreds have been at least temporarily totally wiped out in Michigan in terms of paramutual tracks. And you've been looking at other ways that you could raise revenue for horse racing and for the equine industry in Michigan. And one of the things that did happen was what is called advanced deposit wagering was enacted, I think, in late 2019, and it's gone into effect. And from what I know, uh, the revenue from that has really uh, been a big boost to the industry, right? Uh, It it has. ADW is a um, decades-old tool that's been available um, in jurisdictions surrounding us, but but don't get me wrong. It's um, what it what it does is allows third-party providers, um, Twin Spires, Express Bet, to take bets for Michigan residents legally and to remit um, monies to the state via taxes and to the racetrack and horsemen. Um, this had been going on, Bill, as you know, since you were commissioner uh, or since this tool became available. And these third-party providers were not paying it. We're, we're keeping all the money, and and that was in violation of law when it when it dealt with residents of Michigan. So the, the legislature closed the loophole and required these providers to um, to become licensed by the state by gaming control. And now the money has started to flow. So um, th- this tool has been especially good during COVID, as you can imagine, because versus having to go to a facility, they can now stay at home and, and wager from home. So so it's really been um, a big help um, uh, in part because uh, because you can do it from home, and obviously the restrictions of COVID have made uh, made it uh, much more attractive. Right. I'm looking at a report from the Michigan Gaming Control Board, and it says we now have three ADW providers, and the tax on those wagers, one percent, will probably eventually yield around eight hundred to nine hundred thousand to the agriculture equine fund annually the adw tax rate was set low so the tracks could get more money northville and the mhha probably stand to get around one and a half million to two million a piece from ADW annually. Also, the Lawful Internet Gaming Act allows 5% of state tax revenue derived from the Detroit casinos to go to the Agriculture Equine Fund with a cap at $3 million. The numbers have been so high that the $3 million mark should be reached in a matter of months. Internet sports betting uses the above formula, but tax yield is low, so probably around 100 thousand a year will go to ag equine you add it all up these bills are going to result in around four million dollars to the ag equine fund and four million to the track i'm going to be back in a minute with tom barrett to talk about this more stay tuned This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned with Tom Barrett. He's president of the Michigan Harness Horsemen's Association. Now, I rattled off a bunch of mind-numbing figures uh, at the close of the previous segment, and I'd just like to ask 
Tom Barrett, what is your reaction to all this money that you guys supposedly are getting? Uh, and how does it compare to the situation in other states? And why is Michigan still considered to be way behind the rest of the field, so to speak, compared to other states when it comes to horse racing? Thanks, Bill. Uh, you know, the money is a help, and, and, and it'll help keep Northville alive and potentially, I would guess, with a single track or a single breed um, may result uh, if the Northville property uh, sold or developed uh, in, into a potentially another track. But our goal is to regrow um, the, the uh, industry, both thoroughbred and harness, with, with new tools like they have in adjoining states, Indiana, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Ontario, and Illinois now have um, racinos or other revenue sources uh, for the horse, for the horsemen, and for the racetracks. Let me give you a, an example so so we can talk about scale. Ten years ago, Ohio was basically in the same position we are. They got VLT legislation, and uh, in 19 pre-COVID, they paid 112 million in purses through six racetracks. Uh, this this year, Northwood pre-COVID, uh, Northville did about 60 million in revenue, and we will have about three or three and a half million in total purses uh, with 60 days of racing. So the scale is uh, um, monumentally different with with these new tools. Um, just this past week, some of our uh, supporters in the legislature, uh, Dan Lowers, Jim Ananick, uh, Julie Alexander, introduced some bills um, to try and uh, start the process of, of getting those tools added. Um, they include HHR and VLTs. Now, HHR is historic horse racing. That is a paramutual tool where you bet on the results of races that have already been uh, run. You don't, you don't know what races they are. They're randomly uh, uh, um, chosen. But it, it's a machine tool that allows for use of a facility and the generation of revenue when there isn't a live racing product or when somebody prefers a machine over, uh, over, you know, uh, simulcasting, uh, at the, uh, Northville or, or any other potential facility. So, um, we're looking for tools, uh, within our building that will help regrow the industry. And, um, you know, there hasn't been a thoroughbred race in three years in Michigan. And, um, you know, unfortunately the breeds have competed, for a ever declining pot of money and, and harness is still the last breed standing. But the fact that there's no thoroughbred racing in Michigan is not a good thing. And, uh, these tools will help, uh, regrow the industry. Uh, Jim Ananick sponsored a bill last session, uh, to, to get the HHR machines in the hopes of reopening sports Creek, uh, as a, a thoroughbred facility that didn't get done. And, and, but we continue, we're, we're a resilient bunch, and we continue to uh, to lobby and work to, uh, to create new tools that will um, regrow the industry. Yeah, I noticed that Senator Lowers said, um, quote, we need to give the horse racing industry a chance and give them the tools they need to be successful. And Lowers <clears throat> said, I've discussed the ability to offer simulcast paramutual wagering within a casino for years, and Senator Hertel's bill in this package is an olive branch to the casinos. We are not a threat to the casino industry, unquote. 
I mean, that is the big problem, isn't it? The casinos, which really almost have a monopoly, uh, if you don't count the state lottery, on uh, legalized wagering now compared to horse racing, uh, they have resisted allowing horse racing to really get up off the mat, haven't they? Well, it's not almost a monopoly. It's it's a complete and utter monopoly. And, and uh, it was cemented with Prop 1, the passage of Prop 1 in 2004. Um, you know, just last year uh, alone, two tools were provided by the legislature and the governor to the uh, casinos. iGaming, which means you can go and wager. You don't even have to go to the Detroit casinos to wager. You can wager online. And then sports wagering. So these... These two tools alone are expected to generate for the uh, casinos between a billion and a billion five in revenue. So the Detroit casinos, with what the legislature and the governor did last year, are going to double their revenue to almost $3 billion a year. And um, just to let you know, our HHR bill last year was tie barred to the iGaming sports wagering bill. They get something, we get something. And, you know, somewhere along the road, they got split apart because uh, because of the monopoly the casinos have. I mean, we can we could talk about the wherefores, but at the end of the day, the casinos didn't want us getting a tool, and they wanted their tools, and, and they got uh, they got what they wanted, and and, and we didn't. So um, the, the monopoly is clear. It's it's been an effect, and 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 the impact on racing has been devastating. Uh, you know, at one time we were half a billion a year. You know, Bill, that. Um, Horse racing is a very labor-intensive uh, uh, business. Uh, a lot of people employed to raise horses and race horses, and uh, you know that that this industry and its impact on agriculture have been uh, have have shrunk since the uh, casinos showed up, and, and since their um, you know, like you said, monopoly of the gaming industry has uh, has uh, taken hold. Yeah, let me just mention just one little thing, and that is when you're talking about casinos or you're talking about the lottery, you're betting against the house if you're a better, okay? But in horse racing, it isn't really gambling in the pure sense. Uh, it means among ourselves. It's a French expression, meaning that the players, the betters, set the odds and so it's betting based, at least in part, on skill, uh, on your ability to figure out yourself who should win and who can't win and bet accordingly. Whereas in all these other forms of betting, you hear about these fantastic payoffs and jackpots. But the fact of the matter is a huge, huge, like, way over 90% of all the money bet in casinos and the lottery goes to the house, meaning to the state of Michigan or going to the owners of the casinos. It doesn't go to the betters. Horse raising, a much bigger percentage goes to the betters themselves, right? That's right. Paramutual, uh, as you said, means uh, um, amongst us, which which means that uh, you're not betting against a computer algorithm or uh, – uh, against the house, you're betting against the other betters. That's how the odds are determined for uh, horses to win, place, and show. And um, about 80% of every dollar bet is returned to the uh, gamblers in paramutual uh, wagering. The other 20% is uh, taxes, 
and, and then a commission to the racetrack and the horsemen for for putting on the show. So, you know, the the, the benefit here is not to, um, uh, you know, um, uh, benefit racetrack owners. It has to be a viable business model, but the benefit here is to the um, participants, uh, job creation, horse racing industry, and, and agriculture in Michigan. You know, horses uh, eat hay, grain, and, and, and other services. Um, to give you an example, they did a study recently that uh, every horse raised uh, generates about 35000 in economic activity. If you look at Ohio, 10 years ago, they were like Michigan, about 50 foals a year. This year, I think they're going to be close to 3,000 foals. Wow. Uh, for harness for, for harness horses already, uh, for harness horses uh, specifically, so the impact just with harness horses has gone from a couple of million to over a hundred with the raising of that many foals, and and they get raised because of the of the opportunity to race in Ohio. Wow, listen, you have really painted a great picture of the situation here in Michigan with Michigan horse racing, particularly standard bred harness horse racing and i want to thank you tom barrett president of the michigan harness horsemen association for being our guest today thanks bill appreciate the opportunity we will be back in a minute with another guest stay tuned you're listening to the political insider with bill ballinger on mtn here's bill we have returned, and we are very fortunate to have on the line with us Tudor Dixon. That's Tudor, T-U-D-O-R, as in like King Henry VIII or Elizabeth I. <laughs> I mean, that's Tudor Dixon, D-I-X-O-N. And she is described as an experienced television personality with a demonstrated history of working in a variety of environments in the U.S. and abroad. She has a very strong business development, professional skilled in negotiation, operations management, sales management, team building, and purchasing. Welcome to the Political Insider, Tudor Dixon. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Well, let me ask you, I think you graduated from University of Kentucky back in the 1990s. Um, what did you major in? And from there, I think you got into the steel industry. How did that happen? <laughs> I did. I majored in psychology, which is the best possible thing to major in if you're eventually going to end up in sales, which is where I did end up for a while. But I did. I went to the University of Kentucky. I met my husband there, dragged him back up to the Chicago area where I grew up. And pretty quickly after that, my father called me and said, I've purchased a steel foundry in Michigan and I want you to come up and work with me. And it was really, truly the best experience of my life. We moved to Michigan when we were newly married and I began working in customer service in the foundry, spent all of my days at the shop in the foundry, learning as much as I can, because when you're dealing with the customer's problems, you learn how to fix the problems very quickly. And from there, I moved into sales where I got to look at what we did in Michigan and how it affected the rest of the country and the rest of the world. So I got to go into factories like Caterpillar, John Deere, National Oil Well, see these parts that we created in Michigan be used to impact lives across the country, which was incredible. There's really nothing like manufacturing because what you do, it, it affects all of the people in the country in such a positive, amazing way. And so I got to see that. 
And then I decided to take a few years off and have children. So I have four lovely girls. And I'm very fortunate that I was able to have four lovely girls. And we are just having a blast. And I decided after having the girls that I would go back to work. At that point, the foundry had closed. We lost a lot of factories in the United States in the 2009-2008 situation that we had in the country. So our factory had closed, and I went back to a steel mill in Chicago. And I was the salesperson for Michigan and Indiana, stayed here in Michigan the whole time. I sold, so I, I was fascinating because I went from selling steel castings to selling steel forgings, but the steel castings were more agriculture. Uh, we were selling a lot of construction equipment and things like that, no automotive. But when I went to the steel industry, the, the forging, it was all automotive. So I got to see our automotive industry here in Michigan, which is a phenomenal industry. You have no idea how many little businesses in Michigan contribute to what happens in Detroit. And it is just wonderful that we are able to do this in the middle of the country. Michigan is perfectly located to be the centerpiece of manufacturing in this country. And it was a fabulous, fabulous experience going through that in the steel industry. Yeah. So you started out, I guess, with Michigan Steel and then Cast Steel Technology. That's where you were director of sales, right? Yes. And then Finkel Steel, district sales manager. Uh, are you based mainly up in the Muskegon area? I am, yes. Yes, I'm in the west. I'm in West Michigan. So my territory was really west and mid-Michigan and then northern Indiana, yes. Okay, well, from there, I mean, I see you're supposedly the co-founder of Lumen Student News. Now, that is quite a departure from what, <laughs> what you just got telling me about. How did this happen? Well, when I was working in, uh, when I was working at Finkel, a friend of ours came to us and said, "Hey, I really think that we need to have an alternative for our students in school right now. We only have Channel One and CNN Ten. I think we should have a conservative channel for students in school, something that can reach them in a different way. But not just news; it was going to be educational, and you know, we had." stories about work and different options for kids so the kids could understand there is life beyond high school and it doesn't necessarily have to be college. It can be. There are great jobs there, but there are also great jobs if you go to trade school. So we wanted to go out there with something like this. And, you know, he came to me and said, let's do this. And I said, I don't know. I don't know anything about that. I think <laughs> I'll stay where I'm safe. Stay where I'm safe. And and um, these friends of ours, they were persistent, and I'm so glad that they were because I said, you know what, I like to change things up. I like to try new things. You only live once. Let's do this. We did that, and pretty quickly we were approached by Real America's Voice, and they said, listen, you're doing something on a smaller scale for kids, but we're doing something on a larger scale with much more reach, uh, an entire network, and we think it's really important. We like the way you think. We want you to join us. So at that point, my, my business partner was on the air and I was behind the scenes. And that was totally fine with me. I absolutely loved the production part of it. Learning that industry was phenomenal. And, and it was a great experience. And then one day the owners came to me and said, I want you to go on the air. And I thought, you're nuts. Why would you want me to do that? <laughs> And it was great. You know, now I, I you I think you know Steve Gruber. He is yeah. he has a radio program. Sure. He's on every day. Every day we do a program together, one to three, just a news program. We have some really great 
fun stories about things that are amazing that are happening around the country. We like to highlight some of our state parks, some of our national parks. We like to give people news and positive stories because I think Steve and I are genuinely both folks that look on the positive side of things. We like to see the opportunity in life. And so that's what we do. That's, I'm blessed to have that opportunity every day by the people at Real America's Voice that they say, yes, you want to focus on news and positive stories, you go there and do it. It's been amazing. Well, you've done so well that people are actually asking you, hey, maybe you ought to run for public office. Maybe you ought to run for governor. And I mean, there are all these names I see in the paper, like John James, who's run for the U.S. Senate twice, Ronna, Ronna McDaniel, uh, Garrett Soldano, who's a chiropractor from Kalamazoo, is announced for governor. There's somebody named Ryan Kelly. There's somebody named Austin Cheege, uh, or Chenge, excuse me, C-H-E-N-G-E. Uh, but what about uh, Tudor Dixon? What about you? You're right. There have been a lot of people who have said, hey, look, look at your experience. I'm a woman who worked in a man's industry. And that's a challenge. I mean, those, there are challenges you overcome in that life, not just working in an environment where it's not typical for a woman, but also bringing a team together and creating a really fun workplace in a job that's tough. You know, it's a, it's a tough job. Going from that to having children, looking at the experience that Michigan has gone through in the last year, people have said, look at what happened to you. You have your working mom. You have four girls. I took my girls out of public school and put them in our Christian school here because I needed that assurance that my kids were going to get an education and they were going to be in school. And so I went through that. While my while I was home with my girls before I went back to work, I did go through a, a experience with breast cancer. So I fought cancer, went through that. I went through our health care system in a way a lot of people at my age haven't had to. And I've seen the good parts of our healthcare system and the broken parts of our healthcare system. And that's something we really need to focus on in Michigan right now because the pandemic hurt our healthcare system more than most people are willing to talk about. And so, you know, I've had people say, you have this experience, you know, the automotive industry, and then you've also been given this bizarre situation where God came to you and said, hey, you can go on TV and communicate. And I've been given a voice that I wasn't ever expecting to have. And so I have had people come to me and say, look at what you could do. You could bring the right people together to lead this state. It's an interesting conversation. It's certainly one that I'm open to continuing to have. And I've, I've seen the benefit of having the right team in Lansing. I can see what that would do for the state. When you look at the state, we are 38th in the nation. If you look at the U.S. News and World Report, report that just came out 38th in the nation our education system is 38th in the nation we have the most dangerous city in the entire country something that is just filled with opportunity when you look you say we can't get much worse we've got to be able to get better here we've got dangerous cities we've got a terrible school system we've been shut down longer than any other state in this country we hurt our farms when we shut down our restaurants we hurt our hospitality industry when we shut down our restaurants we have to bring this state back, and it has to be the right the right team of people that can do it. What do you think you have to do between now and what's your deadline for making a decision on whether to run? 
You know, I, I have a team that I'm working with to determine if it's really a viable situation, and we just haven't gotten there yet. So as soon as I have an idea, I will let you know. Well, that'll be great. We'd love to have you back. You've done a great job of explaining in whirlwind rapid fashion the ascendant <laughs> career of Tudor Dixon from Kentucky in the 1990s to Michigan. And what lies ahead, we'll wait and see. I'm very curious, and I'm very excited about the prospect. Thank you, Tudor Dixon, for being our guest. Thank you so much for having me. We'll be back next week with still more.